Well, good morning, friends. It is good to be with you this morning. Thanks for taking some time out of your weekend to, uh, to join us here at West Bowles. Hope you had a great week. Hopefully we are encouraging and inspiring you to have an even greater week coming up, but you are our honored guest, especially if it's your first time, your first time in a long time. Uh, we're so grateful, so glad that you're here. Uh, hopefully you can stop by the I'm New table in the foyer, give us a chance to meet you, and, uh, and thank you uh, for being here today. Hey, today we are wrapping up a sermon series that we have been in for the last six or seven weeks or so, something we titled Better Together. And uh, here's the heart and hope kind of behind this whole thing. If you haven't been with us, here's what we've been talking about. Some things, if you think about it, were just made for one another. Take, for example, nuts and bolts, uh, Timon and Pumbaa, or how about cheesecake and just about anything. It's as if God specifically made these things for one another. Am I right? I mean, they're all okay individually, but oh, they're so much better when they're together. And what's true uh, with certain Hollywood characters or different foods, even cultural trends, it's also true when it comes to different generations here in the church. See, God designed the church to be full of every life stage and folks from every background and every age because according to him, the one who originally imagined this whole thing, we're so much better together. And this morning we're excited. We actually have some of our littlest ones among us. We're doing a little family-style worship, so there is no junior church today. So if you look around, the age of the sanctuary dropped significantly this morning, and uh, we're grateful for that. We're excited about that. Little ones, we're, we're, glad that you're, we're glad that you're with us. See, we see this teaching, this idea that we are better together. We see it all throughout the scripture. We see it in certain psalms. We see it in certain biblical partnerships. We see it in the analogies used throughout the Bible to describe the church, and we also see it in a bunch of Paul's letters. The Bible makes it clear that we are at our best when we are all together, folks from every age and every life stage. So in this particular series, we've done our very best to honor and highlight the five or six generations that are represented here at West Bowles. Uh, we've heard from them directly. We've tried to celebrate and champion who they are and in particular what they've taught us about walking faithfully with, with the Lord. Last week, we spent some time getting to know our youngest generation, Generation Z, and hopefully this week you took me up on my challenge to go and meet and hang out with some of our young people because they have so much to teach us, so much to share uh, with us. But truth be told, Generation Z technically isn't our youngest generation. As Ryan mentioned, a new generation started about two years ago called Generation Alpha. It is those of our littlest, littlest ones, and I think you need to hear directly from them, so uh, go ahead and watch this. I love you, bushel and a peck, bushel and a peck, and I hug around the neck, hug around the neck, and barrel in a heap, barrel in a heap, and I'm talking in my sleep about you. not a lot to glean from Generation Alpha quite yet, although I would say don't let your head fall on an unsuspecting cat, right? There are some lessons they can teach us even at that young age. But what I want to do this morning is talk about what we as a church are doing or, or not doing to reach that generation for Jesus. 
This morning as we conclude this series, I want to ask the question, what now? So we are a church of, of every generation and folks from every life stage. Well, so what? What does that mean? And what do we do with that? Well, in light of Halloween this past week, I thought it would be appropriate to share some of the scariest Bible verses uh, in all of the Scripture. Now, when I say scary, I'm not referring to, you know, a creepy or, or, or gory or menacing in that regard, although there are some stories in the Bible like that. There are demon-possessed men shrieking in the caves and folks who rise up out of the grave and walk around like zombies. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about verses that are scary, frightening because of what they teach, what they infer, and maybe what they mean for us. Let me give you an example. Matthew 13. Beginning in verse 54, says this, Coming to his own hometown, Jesus began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were all amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't, isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers just those guys, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas? I mean, aren't all his sisters with us? Where, then, did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. I'm not sure why you're not screaming right now because that's scary. That is so scary. You see what happened there? The, the people in Jesus' own hometown, they didn't have a lot of faith. Therefore, they didn't see a lot of miraculous things and I wonder, is that same dynamic still in play today? And does our lack of one necessitator lead to the lack of the other? It's a scary thought, isn't it? How our faith somehow is tied into Jesus' ability or willingness to do the miraculous for us. How about 1 Peter 5? This is pretty scary. Be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Wait, 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 wait. You believe in the devil? You believe there's some fallen angel that somehow orchestrates and organizes all the evil in this world? You believe in Satan? You know, red guy, a pitchfork, goatee, menacing, laughing. <laughs> you, you believe in all that? Yeah, I do. And I'll, I'll raise you one. In fact, I don't just believe in him, but I believe that he is constantly on the lookout for people that he can destroy. People that he can devour, it says. Sometimes those attacks come like machine gun fire, don't they? Everything is coming at you, and you just feel like you're attacked one day in one way after another. And other times it's a sniper shot. He just waits for that opportune moment. He takes you out. You didn't even know it. didn't even see it coming. But our enemy, the devil, has a mission, and it's to bring about your death. That's scary, don't you think? But the scariest passage in all the Bible, in my opinion, is actually found in the book of Judges. Let me... Let me read this to you. It's, a, it's a rather long, but, but hang with me. I think you can do this. Judges 2, beginning in verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. 
They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and, and served Baal and the Asherahs. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they no longer were able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn, and they were in great distress. Everybody lay out a, just, or let out a, a big old scream with me. Ah! That's scary. What we just read right there in Judges that's scary. Now, there are a lot of scary components to it, but what's most scary is verse 10. And there arose another generation who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done. You with me? You agree that's scary? I mean, think about it. The passage starts off by telling us that God's people, they had finally, after years of struggling and fighting for this land, they were finally in the promised land that God had, had given to them and promised to them hundreds and hundreds of years before. They were finally taking possession of the land. They were living in and out of the promise. It was a good time. It says in verse 7, they were living in light of all the great things that God had done for them. This was a time of celebration, commemoration. They were enjoying things. They were experiencing life the way God wanted them to experience it. But within a few short years, the text says, that faithful older generation, when they all passed away, something changed. Something, something switched. And there arose an entire generation that knew nothing of God, that knew nothing of the promise, that knew nothing of all the great things that he had done. And because of that, the text says, all hell broke loose. I mean, I mean literally. Right? People walked away from God, they worshiped other things, they aroused the anger of the Lord, and you want to talk about scary. Can you imagine what it feels like when the hand of God is against you, defeating you as you go out to defeat others? Now, now I know, I know I can get pretty worked up about some things, and it can get me in trouble at times, but I believe with all of my heart, what happened in Judges is happening right now with our generation. This is what's happening right now to us. I'm not sure if you noticed this or not, but over the course of this series, things like faith and church attendance and a biblical worldview, what have they done? They have drastically decreased with each new generation. I shared this with you last week. Generation Z, our teenagers, are the most non-Christian generation in American history, only four out of every 100 teens has an accurate biblical worldview. You add to that suicide rates, the depression statistics, all the mess on the internet, all the struggles our young people are facing, it is safe to say the same phrase that was used to describe the generation in Judges could be used to describe our young people. They are in great distress. You with me? And the question we have to ask ourselves, the question I think the Lord is asking is, what are you, what are we, church, going to do about this? See, trend lines like that, they don't just magically change themselves, do they? It takes someone coming in saying, we got to change that. we got to do something about that. So what are we this group of, of different generations, diverse generations, what are we going to do for the next generation? What are we going to do as it pertains to their faith development and their maturation? Because if we just stay on this same course, 
If we just keep operating in a business-as-usual mindset, if we just assume young people are going to start running into the church and begging us to teach them about God, there will arise a generation, an entire generation, that knows not the Lord or any of his ways. And it's already happening. See, it doesn't matter if we live in a very Christian culture or in a completely postmodern, way beyond Christian culture. It doesn't matter if you live in the Bible Belt or if you're way on the crazy coastlines. It doesn't matter if you're a plumber or a pastor. Your charge as a follower of Jesus is to faithfully pass on your faith to the next generation. Your call, your commission is to ensure that those who are following behind you, the younger generations, are literally following in your footsteps as you're following in the footsteps of Jesus. Listen to Psalm 78. My people, my people, my people. Linda, Linda, Linda. Hear my teaching. Listen to the words coming out of my mouth. I'll open my mouth with a parable. I'll utter hidden things, things from of old, things we've heard and known, things our ancestors have told, the storyline of God. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord about his power and the wonders that he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they, in turn, would tell their children. And they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would remember his commandments. You see the parallel there with the judge's story? No, 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 we're not going to be like that. We're not going to be the the generation that doesn't look out for the next generation. We're going to be one that tells the next generation. They will not be in distress. They will live faithfully. We're going to own that. We're going to do that. Church, it's, it's honestly as if it's honestly as if we got a shovel in our hands. And we've got, we've got one of two options as the Lord has given us this particular tool. We can dig our own grave with this by maintaining the status quo, by, by doing things the way we've always done them, by being apathetic to the rapid culture shift that is happening all around us, or instead of digging our own grave with this, we can till new soil. We can plant new seeds we can build a garden for the next generation where new life can come about because of the hard work that we put in. What you want to do? You want to build a grave, dig a grave, or you want to dig a garden? And I did not become a follower of Jesus. I am not filled with the life-giving spirit to dig a grave. Let the dead bury the dead. We are alive in Christ And our call, our commission is to use this tool to bring about new life. Amen, church. Don't don't dig a grave with this. Dig a garden, a beautiful garden that the next generation can thrive in. Because you see, church, this this isn't a them problem, as if the next generation's lack of faith is their fault. I mean, that'd be like yelling at a plant for not growing in your garden. Like, why don't you figure it out? grow like tap you on the shoulder be like dude did you water it did you tend to it did you prune it did you care for it did you fertilize that thing it's not the plant's fault it's the gardener's fault so it's not a them problem i love how the psalmist says i want to reach generations that aren't even born yet so it's not a them problem that they have to fix or figure out it's an us problem that we've got to fix and figure out Pastor John Piper says it this way. 
Every generation must assist in the preservation and transmission of God's revelation to the next generation. Every generation has to do. See, that there's no in-between here, guys. You're either actively involved in digging the church's grave or you're actively involved in tilling soil for the next generation. You can't really do one or the other. And if you're not sure which one you're doing, chances are it's the bad one. That's kind of how that works. Someone posed the following question to me a few weeks ago. I just cannot stop thinking about it. The question is, what are the best toppings to put on your burger? And I'm like, man, that is, that is so heavy. It's like barbecue sauce and onion rings, yes, or queso and bacon. Like, mmm, bacon. And no one says amen to that. <laughs> queso and bacon, yo. Man, it is time to go. <laughs> Just kidding. The question wasn't that. Here's the question they posed. Is it possible that far too many churches are trying to reach young people in a way that no longer works and or preparing young Christians to live out their faith in a world that no longer exists. Ways that no longer work in a world that no longer exists. You know what you're doing that whole time? Just digging the grave. Ways that no longer work in a world that no longer exists. This is fun, guys. Let's just keep digging this grave. No, I don't want to dig a grave. I want to plant a garden. I want to do something so good, so life giving. Let me tell you why I think the answer to those questions is a yeah, yeah, we're actually, we're actually doing that. Let me walk, this, walk you through this just real fast. Acts, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Let's start there. Jesus ascends into heaven. He goes back into heaven, and the Holy Spirit, his power, his breath, his life descends onto the church, okay? This is kind of the context that we're in. And the apostle Peter, who's now this, this like boisterous, super bold preacher, man, what a transformation this guy's experienced in his own life, he stands up to give a sermon. And it's one of the most impactful sermons of all time. Acts 2, verses 15 and 16. Fellow Jews, he says, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people, the, the apostles who are all speaking in all these different languages and experiencing the manifestation of the Spirit in new ways, they're not drunk as you, as you propose or as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Then Peter, in this sermon, he goes on to unpack this beautiful prophecy that the, that the prophet Joel had made hundreds of years before. In verse 22, Peter says, fellow Israelites, and then he unpacks the words of King David, words this group knew very well, the prophecy of the coming Messiah. Right? But, but even from the language that I'm sharing with you guys right now, it should be obvious to you, Peter, Peter's talking to his own, right? Fellow Israelites, fellow Jews, you know from the scripture, you remember the story when your mama told you about such and such, right? He understands where he is. These folks understand the basic tenets of faith, of, of a godly worldview. They just need someone to come up and clear up a few things, to clean up and clarify a couple of things for them. They need someone to help them kind of connect the dots. They have this understanding of like God and, and this prophecy and this Messiah. Yeah, Jesus. Jesus is the one that connects all those dots perfectly together. Jesus. You guys had this baseline understanding of things. Now Jesus brings it to a whole nother level. You with me? That's Acts chapter 2. That's the sermon in Acts chapter 2. Fast forward now, Acts chapter 17. Instead of Peter, this time it's the apostle Paul preaching. And he ain't, he ain't in Jerusalem preaching. He's in a place called Athens. 
And as a result, he's not speaking to his own. He's not speaking to the fellow Jews, fellow Israelites. He is speaking to the folks who are at the furthest end of the religious cultural war, if you will. They have never heard about God before, Acts 17, verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, People of Athens, I see in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at all your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription on it, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant, it seems, of the thing that you worship. Well, this is what I'm going to talk to you about. This is what I'm going to proclaim to you in this moment. But you see, in this sermon, Paul didn't use insider language, did he? He didn't quote the Old Testament. He didn't go with prophecy. He didn't talk about King David or the coming Messiah. Because this audience had no clue what any of those things were. They would have been totally lost had you brought that approach. The audience didn't know anything about God. In fact, they worshipped all kinds of other gods, all the gods of that day. They're meeting in a place called the Areopagus, this huge pavilion of sorts. And throughout the entire place are these altars, these monuments, these statues. And it's to all the Greek gods of the day. you got Zeus over here, Poseidon over here, Athena over here. There's even an altar in one of the corners of the building that says, to an unknown god. Like, just in case we miss somebody out there, this is for you. We didn't know your name, we're sorry about that, but we did worship you too. This, this is who he's talking to. And it's clear in this moment, like Dorothy said, man, they, they ain't in Kansas anymore. They are not in Kansas anymore. He spoke and he taught and he preached accordingly. He went into their world. He spoke their language. He understood and referred to their gods. And then, and only then, was he able to tell them about his God. Do you see the difference? It's as if one guy was preaching on the platform in the church, and as if the other guy was like, he stood up on top of the bar at the club, and that's where he was preaching. Like, like one guy was talking to those in the pews, and the other guy realized, man, there's a big old party going on right here. It's a chance for me to talk about Jesus. Such different context, such different approaches now, they were both incredibly effective. In both settings, people responded. That's because Peter understood where he was in Acts chapter 2, and Paul understood exactly where he was in Acts chapter 17. The message was essentially the same. There is one true God who redeems a hurting world through the resurrection of his son, but they took drastically, dramatically different approaches to sharing that same message. And unfortunately, in, in my estimation, friends, there are far too many Acts 2 churches in an Acts 17 world. There are far too many Peters preaching to fellow Israelites when they're actually in Athens, speaking to those of the Areopagus. You cannot be an Acts 2 church in an Acts 17 world. It just will not work. You see, we are using language and stories and methods under the assumption the next generation has a baseline understanding that all we got to do is help kind of change the course for them a little bit. No, 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 no. They are on a course of destruction, and it's up to us not to just alter their course a little bit, but to get them on the right course. And it's going to take an Acts 17 understanding. It's going to take an Acts 17 approach. See, this generation, like those in Athens, they worship everything, don't they? The gods of this age well, why would they do that? Well, they see it on TV. They see it on the internet. They see it in their peer groups. They see it at home. We worship everything around us in this world except the creator of the world. And it's going to take some Paul standing up and saying, we're in Athens right now. 
And we got to talk to the folks in the Areopagus using their language. We're going to take that to reach the next generation. And folks, friends, it's, it's not up to David. This is not his job to do this. It's up to all of us. See, the job is too big. The work is too laborious. The need is too great. We've all been given shovels. And you are either digging a grave or you're digging a garden. The choice is really yours. And I wonder at times, as I've been thinking about this week, is when we stand before God, is he going to judge us or evaluate us, not necessarily based on our own faith, but the faith of those that came after us? Is that going to be one of the questions? Like, Thomas, I'm so glad you believed in me, but what did you do to raise up the next generation so they would believe in me? Listen to the words of Psalm 71, 18. Even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, God, till I declare your power to the next generation. Your mighty acts to all who will come. Do you hear what this old guy's saying? Lord, don't take me yet. Don't take me now. I've got too many young people, and i got to reach for the Lord. Let me stay on this earth just a little bit longer so I can reach the next gen. Oh, I love that. And a huge challenge for us, church, as believers, especially older believers, is to keep our eyes on them, on the next generation generation. We, we, we will so easily, and maybe it's the enemy, right? We turn inward. We play it safe. We maintain the status quo. We do what's comfortable. But what about them? Does our worship reach them? Does our teaching inform them? Do our service projects inspire them? Do our Bible studies minister to them? That's the question I want you to ask in every moment and in every decision that you make moving forward. Does it reach the next generation? What if, what if, let's just think out loud just for a second. Let me think out loud just for a second. What if, instead of having another Bible study during the week, what if we found a way to go to Dakota Ridge, take a bunch of students out to lunch every week? What if, instead of circling the wagons and coming together as an older generation on Sundays, what if y'all flooded the youth building and went and hung out with them? On Sunday mornings? What if instead of hanging out at the church, we started tutoring the kids at that school that's right across the park here? What if instead of fighting for what we want, we fought for what they need? What if we became a church that would stop at nothing to reach the next generation for Jesus? What if? Because I believe God always has and always will bless a church that is so zeroed in on the next generation. And isn't that, West Bowles, the story of this place? If you haven't been here for, for a long time, you need to go, go over to the chapel, Little White Chapel, go down the stairs that are on your left when you first go in, and there's a humongous picture, about three, 400 young people sitting on the front steps of this church. Why, why is that? Because Wes Bowles did everything they could at a certain point in their history to reach the next generation. Every moment of extra time, every extra dollar that came in the building, every little bit of manpower they had available, it was to the next generation. And this church exists today because of the blessing they were to the next generation several generations ago. That's why we are still here. It was a singular focus. It was a passion and a mission field for the young people of Littleton. I love that. I think we need to get back to that. So I don't have any specific answers for you. Of course not. I'm just a consultant. I just have questions. 
Here's some questions I want you to wrestle with for a little while. Talk about with the leaders. Do we feel a burden to reach the next generation for Jesus? Why or why not? What specific things have we or I sacrificed or given up for the sake of more effectively reaching the next generation for Jesus? How much time have I personally spent ministering to the next generation? Would I honestly ask God to give me just a little bit more time on this earth so I could reach those in the next generation? Am I prepared to give an account to God himself for how much time, energy, or money I gave in this life so our youth could know and find life? Church, what if we, what if we were a place where every generation gathered so we could reach the next generation? What if it was a place where every generation came together to reach the next generation? What if the silence What if our silence used their wisdom and experience? What if the boomers, what if our boomers used their resources and drive and work ethic? What if if our extras used their technological abilities and ingenuity? What if the millennials, what if our millennials used their their beanies and skinny jeans, right? (laughs) I'm just kidding. What if they used their, their passion for justice and their creativity? What if the Zs used their acceptance of others and their inquisitive nature? What if every generation used what God has uniquely given them as a generation to reach the next generation. What if, Bowles, I want to see you answer that question. What if you became that church? You can and you will. Every generation coming together to use what God has given them, uniquely gifted them with as a generation to reach the next generation. Can somebody say amen to that? You think, God, you think God would bail on a church like that? You think God would shrug his shoulders and be apathetic towards a church like that? Man, God would open up the floodgates of heaven for a church like that. Better together. We are so much better together. But statistically speaking, church, there are far fewer of our young people in this place than there are our older generations. Far fewer. And we won't be together for very long. There won't be a better together for much longer if the older generations do not develop a singular focus for the next generation. The trend line will not stop itself. A church is going to have to step up and say, we will be the ones to change that. A grave or a garden? We've got plenty of these in the shed, yo. Let's start, let's start digging a garden. Amen? Let me pray that over you and we'll go eat together. God, we thank you for the high call and the great commission to reach into all the world to make disciples. To tell people of your great love and to explain to them how they can find life now and forevermore. Lord, it is a high calling, an incredible responsibility. Each of us has a unique purpose and a unique way that we're going to carry out that mission, God. And there are so many silent who at the end of their life do not know of your love. And so would our older generation, would they pour into their peers? Would they love on their their neighbors and their friends and share the love of Jesus with them as their life comes to an end? Lord, and our boomers, there are so many lost boomers. Would our boomers take it upon themselves in this church to reach out to all the Arab boomers who are in Littleton? And would the boomers see this huge rise in, 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 in empty nesters giving their life to the Lord, God? And our Xers, would our Xers, would they see there are so many lost Xers in this community? 
Would they feel this burden for their peers and their friends and their coworkers? God, would they reach out to other extras with the gospel of Jesus? And our millennials, Lord, would our millennials feel this, this burden deep in their spirit for the other millennials who have all walked away, Lord, or know nothing of the faith? Would millennials reach their friends and their peer groups with the gospel? Would Generation Z, guys, they go into their high schools and their middle schools, would they know so many people don't know about your son? And would they take it upon themselves to remedy and fix that problem, God? And would all of us, for the sake of Generation Alpha, would all of us pick up the shovel and instead of digging a grave for the next generation, would we dig a garden? Would we till hard soil so that we can then plant and so then you can give life to an entire new generation, God. One who might turn this world upside down, right side up. Lord, you've given us the choice, life or death, a grave or a garden. Would this church choose very wisely moving forward? Would they always choose life? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.